0: Goldman Sachs recently released a statement that there is a hundred percent price of a recession. Now, a lot of people are expecting this to be one of the worst recessions in history, if not a Great Depression or a Great Reset. But there are economists who have a more pragmatic, realistic view and think that maybe, just maybe we will come out of this relatively unscathed. One of my favorite guests, Francis Coppola, joined me today to discuss this and a wide ranging of topics about the economy, Bitcoin, and the crypto market. Is there anything that I can say to you or that anyone can say to you to convince you to become a Bitcoiner?
1: Um, I'm not totally opposed to Bitcoin. I've been on record as saying I do think we need um, what we might call private monies, monies that, that governments can't can't control um because not all governments are benign um governments can be very authoritarian and if governments had total control of all money then they'd have the ability to deny people the means to live and i don't think that any government should have that capability and it's one of the things that worries me very much about the move to cbdcs for example that that's an extension of the power of the state the the beauty about physical cash I was. a crypto podcast, and here I am talking about physical cash, right? We the talk about, about physical
0: cash here. It's no hey, problem. And, and I think, just to be clear, and I've had you on before, we're. I, I believe that we're very rational and pragmatic here mm-hmm. and appreciate both sides of the argument know that this isn't for everyone. So,
1: <laughs> sure. you don't
0: have to be uh, particularly skewed in one direction to have a good conversation about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the beauty of physical cash was that even though it was created by governments, governments couldn't control where it went. Um So it could be uh, used by people who otherwise the government wouldn't want in their country or wouldn't want to have the means to live. They had no ability to deny those people the right to transact. And that includes people like criminals. It's one of the big issues with physical cash is that physical cash is still the number one transaction medium for criminals Um, because it's... It's so difficult to find. It's so difficult to trace. It's so difficult to, to collect. Um, so some of the arguments about CBDCs have been around whether a central bank should create an, a, an equivalent to physical cash that was basically just a bearer instrument um, which could go anywhere and couldn't be traced. And I think the reaction from governments and central banks everywhere has been, no way are we doing that. Um, and so in a way, the move to the digital economy and the fact that it is becoming increasingly difficult to transact only in physical cash um, is uh, leading us towards um, increased control and, uh, of the state over money, over the money that everyday people use for transactions. And maybe there's a role therefore, for a Bitcoin or even something even more privacy oriented than that. Um, to act as a counterbalance, as something that people can use to transact in the digital economy without governments being able to control it, know about it, seize it from them, stop them doing it.
0: Interesting. A lot of people would probably point to private stablecoins as the happy medium between those two. The original argument for Bitcoin, obviously, was peer-to-peer cash, But I think the volatility sort of eliminated that as people viewed it as digital gold and storing it and actually didn't want to spend it. For for various reasons, you don't see that much transacting in it. But a dollarized asset that's on a blockchain and still gives you some of the privacy of cash without it being a central bank digital currency, that might actually be that happy medium, as I said. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I mean, that's kind of where the direction the crypto world has gone in really. The the problem with with that is that if you are linking your um, stablecoin to a fiat currency, then you've provided a means for the government to control it, as indeed we are beginning to see, you know, because of the insistence you must have reserves or you must have this and that and the other. And the the only thing you can do then is drive it offshore, break its link to the fiat currency underlying, then you've got the possibility that the whole thing could simply collapse. So, And the other problem you've got is that a private cryptocurrency is issued by a company right the company could control who gets access to it or who uses it or so forth it, it you know how it's not just governments that are not necessarily benign it's also private companies so if you want to have something that can't be controlled by anybody then that takes you towards things like
0: bitcoin that makes perfect sense right. you obviously products
1: This is me becoming the Bitcoin maximalist that you never thought I would ever be.
0: There you are. That's right. Well, I, you know, I I think that there is always a difference, maybe between what something should be in theory and what it is in practice, and I think that that's where a lot of the disagreement comes uh, around the asset class. But it's good Mm -hmm. to hear, and I think most reasonable people understand the importance of whether it is Bitcoin or not, an asset like that when it fulfills its promise to give people that privacy and protection hedge against those authoritarian governments. And frankly, it seems like we're on a trend where all governments are becoming a little yeah. harder to trust, right? Even the ones that perhaps 10 or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, we viewed as impeccable and you know protecting the people. Now, I think there's a general fear of government that's pervasive across all citizens everywhere.
1: and I think with reason I mean we shouldn't forget that we're short-lived creatures so you know 70 years is a is a, a quite a long time if for a human, but it's a short time in human history and you don't have to go very far back to find a time when governments of supposedly developed countries supposedly advanced countries were extremely authoritarian I mean to to appalling extents and we shouldn't forget that um we can go there again and i would say all the signs are it, we're beginning to head down that road now so I, I think we should be taking some steps to protect ourselves from that
0: you brought up the obvious that the central bank digital currency which was going to be my next question when you were already <laughs> uh, speaking about about bitcoin in the first place is there a positive case for central bank digital currencies if a government built in privacy protections that were equivalent to cash, there are legislators in the United States who have discussed that, or is this just generally a path to violations of privacy and and human rights? And obviously to complete control by the central bank, right? If you, if they want uh, your taxes, take them out of your wallet. They want to airdrop you some stimulus, throw it into your wallet. They want to define what you can spend your money on, how much you have to spend in a month. There's a lot of scary things there, but in theory, If structured correctly, it just could be a better version of cash.
1: Yeah. um, These arguments have actually been around forever um, because the CBDC, I mean, I I can remember in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008, having lots of discussions with people who wanted what we call sovereign money, where the government produces all the money in the economy and banks are simply tasked with distributing it, um, but not with uh, creating it as they do at the moment. I mean, we should remember that actually most money in our economy is actually digital already um it's just it's not um it's not decentralized but it's digital (laughs) and actually most of it's not created by the central bank most of it's created by commercial banks the amount of actual central bank money that people use in their daily transaction is actually limited to physical cash banks use central bank money uh, between themselves to settle payments but the money that we ordinary people use in their everyday transactions is created by commercial banks. So a central bank digital currency that was used in the retail space would partially replace the um, money that's created by central banks. So, and in a way, it complicates things and it creates a competition to commercial banks. And for that reason, all the thinking on this around from central banks I've seen has all been about Oh my goodness! We mustn't disintermediate, disintermediate the existing banking system because it could all go horribly wrong, and people could rush to put to pile all their money into the CBDCs, and the banks would lose all their deposits, and they'd all fail. And yeah, it's this nightmare scenario. So um, they, they, all these central banks are coming up with limits. On the way in which people can use CBDCs, ideas about limiting the amount people can have, about the way they what they can use them for, and I look at this and think, you know, if you're having to start putting limits on the amount of money somebody can hold and the the things they can use it for, why would anybody use it? And and just practical things like um, in in most in countries that have advanced banking systems, one of the things that people do they do this at the end of the month, is they, you know, the month is longer than their money. So they temporarily slip it, temporarily slip into an overdraft and they maybe pay a bit of interest on that and then they clear it again, right? This is quite common, lots and lots of people do it. They can't do that with the central bank because the central bank won't offer them an overdraft. It's it's credit risk, they won't take it. So again, it makes just makes it less useful. So the moment you want to have more money in your account than the CBDC limit or have an overdraft facility, or um, use your money in your account for something that isn't on the list of permitted activities for a CBDC, you're back to, you're back to commercial banks again. And I, I'm simple soul. I just think given that commercial banks are supported and insured by central banks, I am not at all sure why, what benefit a CBDC adds to this at all. I, I'm not getting it. Well, I do think a central bank Um, digital currency has some value and we're seeing some movements in that direction already Um, is actually in wholesale markets um, where I I don't know if you remember but after the financial crisis again there was lots and lots of of discussion about safe assets this terrible shortage of safe assets which was all caused by governments basically not producing enough debt um, because government debt um, so prior to the financial crisis in the US um, MBS were treated as safe assets and private label MBS all disappeared. And so everybody substituted treasuries and then there weren't enough of them. Um, and so the price of treasuries rose. and it didn't help that the Fed was doing QE as well, which kind of removed even more of them from circulation. And in Europe, you no, know, this constant, constant fiscal consolidation that, that governments were embarked on the whole time. And, you know, German, Germany's famous parsimoniousness um, meant there was a chronic shortage of safe assets there as well. And so we had this financial system that had really too much cash kicking around because of QE, not enough short term securities, um, and, and the shortage of collateral. Now, it seems to me that a CBDC actually could solve some of the problems of the need to use government debt. As a safe asset in financial markets, it could substitute for it, and that might be quite a good thing. We'd have to think about exactly how that would work, but um, it, you know, it might s- solve a problem.
0: Yeah, what you've described is why I don't believe we're going to get a central bank digital currency anytime soon in the United States, which I, I, I've said countless times and seems to be very controversial. But I don't believe that they're going to disintermediate the banks when. We all know that it's a revolving door from the banks to the government.
1: Yeah. Anyways, I I can't see um, Goldman
0: Sachs being replaced by a central bank digital currency anytime in the near future.
1: It does seem quite unlikely, Scott, I must admit. I mean, I think we might end up with one in Europe, Um, but I think it's going to have limited usefulness. there, There seems to be an element of jumping on the bandwagon here, and everybody seems to be terrified of China. I just think China's a very different country. Yes, they'll probably have a CBDC in China, but it's a command economy. Of course, they'll have one and they'll force everybody to use it because that's what they do. I don't think that needs to affect us because realistically, nobody's going to use a Chinese CBDC as a substitute for the US dollar. They're just not.
0: I I, I agree. and its I mean, that's China's playbook on everything technological or with any even inkling of freedom, right? create a closed internet, create their own version of every social media platform. It's a very insular, you know, uh, protected walled garden of an economy in the first place. But that is where we're going to see traction for central bank digital currencies is in Mm. authoritarian countries, which uh, again, then maybe is even more of a reason for a country like the United States not to adopt what's happening in China. Right. We tend to just go the opposite way.
1: Totally this. I mean, actually, the, in a way the fact that banking, that the creation of money in economies like the United States and in Europe and and in the UK is, is to a degree decentralised. You know, it's not done by one central authority. Most money is created by this network of private banks. Right. Um, and it responds to demand for lending rather than to um, we need this much money, let's create it. Right. So there's a degree of decentralization there. It's perhaps not as decentralized as a crypto based solution would be, but there's some degree of decentralization and that creates resilience in the system. I know we had 2008 when all the banks blew up and everything else. And no, there are vulnerabilities in this system. It is prone to booms and busts. It is prone to concentration and it does need regulation. But, you know, it, there are advantages in, in the way our current system works.
0: You mentioned before safe assets. In 2023, what do we view as safe assets? Because well, I think that that list <laughs> is uh, rapidly diminishing.
1: Um, well, actually, we believe it or not, we still regard U.S. debt as <laughs> uh, the world's premier right. safe asset, um, despite the shenanigans, shenanigans over the debt ceiling and the possibility that the U.S. might default, um, which would be ridiculous, um, ridiculous. it's still the world's number one safe asset simply because there isn't really a substitute. Um, you know, people keep talking about things like gold, um, every now and then you read something where somebody says, Oh, that, um, the nations like China and India and Russia will, um, produce a, uh, they're talking about creating their own currency, settlement currency, which would replace the, is a substitute for the US dollar and might be backed by commodities. Well, good luck with that because, you know, these are all companies, you no, know, you're trying to do that with a ruble. I mean, really, um, is that going to work? I can't imagine China wanting to do that actually, Um, um, you know, so when you start looking at this you think no actually the world's premier safe asset is still um, U.S. treasury bills and will be for a long time to come Um, and to a lesser extent also um, the government debt of other countries in good standing, you know like Germany and Japan, Japan's looking a little wobbly but I am not convinced that it's going to change it much simply because you know if somebody's going to dump um JGBs or USTs or German Buns or whatever you've got to think about where they're going to go where are they going to go because where they're not going to go right now isn't crypto it just no, not
0: I, I think that I think that's uh clear at the moment yeah, yeah. I certainly wasn't making the case for crypto there no any volatile asset is not necessarily safe, at least in the meantime. So it's more of what it could be in the future. You bring up Japan, obviously, and there's sort of this financial meme that we're all becoming Japanese now, mm. right? Is that a good? Thank <laughs> you.
1: Um, Japan is an interesting country because it is a little bit, bit like like the canary. I mean, that um, that. You know when you look at the demographics for example this 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 aging population was aging long before anyone else um and this kind of constantly stagnant economy and it can't get inflation off the floor and you know things like that and every now and then people's it, it, there's uh, inflation kind of looks as if it's going to rise and everybody says oh we need to dump jgbs and then it collapses again and they lose their shirts it's not known as the widow make trade for nothing you know <laughs> um and I keep looking at Japan and thinking, yeah, and actually this kind of long-term stagnation caused by, I guess unfavorable demographics really. And um, in Japan's case, quite a services driven quite a, a, a it's also quite a closed economy. Um, in other areas, it's also caused by the move to the services economy. Um, you know, we talk a great deal about producing lots of stuff, but actually, the amount of stuff the Western countries produce is, as a share of their GDP, is declining, and that does make for a more stagnant economy because it's just so hard to raise productivity in service industries. So, um, you know, in that respect, yes, we are aging societies; we are becoming services economy. We, we're actually a lot more prosperous than we were after world war 2 for example the big 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 growth period after world war II, we're a lot more prosperous now people are richer now than they were then i know it doesn't feel like it but they actually we actually are richer than the people who it, lived it it feels then. like
0: it when you zoom out and not when you zoom in yeah, everybody's I know, hyper it's... everybody's hyper focused on the past few years obviously we had the black swan of covid and we love to point at this immediate trend obviously of credit card debt increasing and and savings decreasing but that could be a very short term thing and we've seen those spikes and troughs many times in the past. Mm.
1: And I think it's right to say that um, for countries like the US and Europe, um, arguably, the very poor prospects for young people uh, are potentially more of an issue than um, than people are giving credit for. There's just, just much too much imbalance at the minute between the old and the young. Um, Well, millennials were
0: born into a terrible, terrible time. I mean, they've basically suffered every single financial disaster at at the most key times in their development. You know, when you're graduating college and something collapses and when it's time to enter the job market and something collapses, it really is... Pretty astounding when you look at yeah, the timing for that generation. It's been
1: general dreadful for them, and and as part of that. You've had the QE period, um, you've had this massive rise in property prices, you've had sta- stagnation of wages, um, you know, and so they look at what people of my generation had and think, we're not going to get close to what you had at our age or even at your age. You know, it it just all seems very unfair to them, um, and I, I think there potentially could be a reckoning for that at some stage. But it has, to some extent, that that sense of unfairness, that sense of the old have got it all and there's nothing for us is, I think, part of what has driven the crypto phenomenon of the last few years.
0: I think and, it has. And I, I, I have some
1: sympathy
0: <laughs> Yeah, I think it's also uh, driven some of that uh, sort of move towards authoritarianism and the political environment that we sort of discussed earlier and lack of trust for for government.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I I mean, I I can't really blame young people for saying we aren't having a proper share in this economy that the old have created and is run by the governments of the old. So we need to create our own money, our own ecosystems, our own economy. and I, and I have some sympathy for that. I can quite understand why they want to do it. I'm not convinced that the way they're going about it is necessarily all that healthy.
0: Well, the good news is that there's no uh, draft or world war at the moment. So I guess that there we can at least say our and hat on that, that as, younger, as, as younger generations for now. Uh, the other point, I guess, about Japan, I, I think you make a great point about the demographics, but is the way that they have managed to official, effectively just squash the 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 bond market, treasury market, right? uh, With yield curve controls, we've seen sort of this trend of QE in other nations, but I think that yield curve control may become the future trend on how the banks manage the economy moving forward. Uh, Do you see that as a trend or do you see that as a bit of a meme about all turning Japanese?
1: I think it. I think it's 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 where we're going, and and actually, I mean, we talked about that, that in relation to Japan, where they're doing it explicitly. But a good many central banks have been doing it implicitly, controlling bond yields to stop them spiking. I mean, the Bank of England did quite a bit of that last autumn. Um, in the case of the Fed, there's a specific reason why um, I think that um, yield curve control is what the Fed's going to have to do, um, because otherwise, it's going to lose control of interest rates, and the reason for that. Or perhaps more accurately liquidity control is what it's gonna to have to do with lose control of interest rates. And that's actually because of the move from LIBOR to suffer, um, so from the um interbank rates to the repo market rate as the principal um market benchmark rate. Um because Whereas the interbank markets where the Fed funds rate operated was just between the banks. So they were just by they were just l- borrowing and lending reserves, like right? central bank money lending it to each other, borrowing it from each other. That's all they were doing. Um now all of almost all of that has now moved into the repo market, which is a much bigger market and full of other participants who don't have access to reserves. So they have to do that. Yeah. So it's not just reserves being lent um, and the market participants involved are not banks or lots of them are not banked banks. Is, uh, banks are major, major providers of liquidity, major market makers in repo markets. But the whole, the whole market is much bigger. And into this comes the Fed saying, right, we're going to use the, san- the um, repo rates um, as our principal um, benchmark. A principal policy rate. Well, to do that, Fed's going to have to have to control it in much the same ways that it has has controlled the uh, uh, um, you know the the Fed fund, fund rate in the past. And and for me, that means that Fed is going to have to intervene in the repo market, um, perhaps more than it really should. I am actually quite disturbed by the move to the repo rate because I just don't yeah. think they've Thought about the implications of having this the principal benchmark rate, the um, a rate that is not simply an interbank rate. I'm mean, okay, Libor, but Libor Lib- 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 was hugely problematic, you know, <laughs> rigged, <laughs> and all the rest of yeah. it. But it was just banks. Um, whereas this is a much much wider um, market now, and that implies that the Fed has got intervened directly in a much much bigger market full of participants that are not banks, and that does imply. Um, you know, I, I, I guess a, a degree of Fed control of financial markets that goes beyond what we had in the past, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And, and you mentioned that they might not be considering the implications. Is there a more pessimistic view where they don't see any other option and in intervention, increased intervention is really the only path of the future for there not to be a great reset or, you know, sort of all of these ideas that people have about another depression?
1: Well, I can quite... See why they did that. Um, I, I mean, I have a bit of an issue with the fen- you know, it's before 20, twenty September 2019, really saying that uh, providing liquidity to the repo market isn't our job. Um, it's the job of the banks. And then the banks said, well, actually, it's more important that we ha- have enough reserves to settle all these payments that we suddenly yeah. have to make because we've got quarterly tax payments and we've got the lifting of the debt ceiling and this massive increase in treasury issuance. And we've got one or two other things as well. And so we're going to hang on to the reserves. We're not going to provide liquidity to the markets. And then the Fed had to do it. Um, you know, and you can see how this kind of tussle played out. But there's no reason to suppose that wouldn't happen again. I mean, and while you rely on commercial banks to provide liquidity to the market, where where which is where the principal rate is the policy rate, it all seems a bit weird. Um, I, I, you know, The Fed actually needs to kind of see what it's done and think through the implications of how much support is it really, going, really reasonable to give to the repo market and is there another rate that could be used which isn't so wholly dependent upon uh, conditions in the repo market um and c- kind of related to that you can see where I'm going with this if your policy rate is a market rate that you're having to manage through the repo Market and then your policy rate is really is that setting your yield curve because you know longer term bond rates um relate to shorter term ones <laughs> yeah then in a way um the fed is is kind of doing yield curve kind of controlling the yield curve um through kind of through the bond market which is a bit but through the um, bond market which is a bit weird anyway, I mean it it, it retained, the, the Fed has moved towards explicit yield curve control at times, so Operation Twist, what's yield curve control arguably, um, anything which changes the duration in the markets is arguably controlling um, yields and it's certainly the question of just what you call it. call it operation twist and you pretend you're not controlling the yield curve but of course you are because you're flattening it aren't you
0: (laughs) i think most people don't understand so they can call it whatever they want and it'll go right over most people's heads regardless but (laughs) we talked about safe assets obviously for governments us debt being being the number one but we talked about how hard life is for millennials younger people to Mm -hmm. survive what are safe assets for your average person who's just looking to save Looking yeah. to get a bit ahead. I mean, we can't we don't even need to talk about the lack of salaries or or the job situation. But what can you put your money in and reliably grow it moving into the future? Of course, there's treasuries, right? I mean, I think yeah. that right now, the obvious place is to earn your four to five percent on short-term treasuries, but that's not outpacing inflation.
1: No, and neither are insured bank accounts and CDs and things like that. I mean, it's actually very hard to find places to put your money in um, liquid or safe savings that isn't going to get eroded by inflation. It's kind of a form of financial repression, really, which is um, kind of, as you say, a little bit unfair to those people who who are trying to build up savings because it's getting eroded. Um, So, I mean, property, if you can get on the ladder. Um, is still a long-term safe investment. I know that we had the crash in 2008, um, but um, it's worth remembering that that was the first property crash in the United States for 70 years.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, we have them a little more frequently here in the UK, but even here, we had a major property crash in 1990, and house prices have more than recovered since. They're like two or three times the amount they were then now. They have really rocketed. And that creates two, that's good for people who own property. So, and that doesn't just mean people who own their own house. It also means people who own rental properties. And so we're seeing increases. Um, but you know, if they're paying, if rental properties are mortgaged, then landlords are paying higher interest rates. So we're seeing increases in rentals because of rental, rental costs because of that, which again hits the young. Um, but of course the bigger yeah the higher your house prices are the more difficult it is for somebody who is young and not on a particularly good wage because you know wages have stagnated haven't they it's just incredibly difficult and more and more difficult for them even to buy property um
0: it's Ex- literally exponentially more difficult because yeah. not only are prices going up and wages stagnant but interest rates but well. interest rates are double I mean it, yeah. you know a, a year ago,
1: yeah, exactly. Your, so a mortgage your, your payment
0: that... has literally, your monthly mortgage payment has practically doubled. If yeah. you have a 30 year mortgage, even more, just depending on how long it's amortized over. I mean, that's an impossible situation.
1: It's really hard. I mean, you know, we don't have 30 year mortgages here. <laughs> uh, And we've had an interesting discussion about whether the short-term fixes we have here um, are worse or better than the the actual floating rates that we also have here. And at the moment, the the view seems to be that most people would be better off with the floating rate because we think that interest rates will come down. And if you are locked into, because in the United States, your 30-year mortgage, you can refinance at a lower rate. But our our short-term fixes here, the average is two to five years. Um, We have some... We have, do have some slightly longer ones, 10 years or 15, but they're expensive. Not many people have them. The common fixes are two to five years. And you, you can't be finance at a low rate. You have to wait for your um, term to expire. So, you know, if you've got a five-year fix um, at current interest rates and interest rates go down, you're going to lose. Um, interestingly, and this is a little bit of an indicator of where Uh, Where we think interest rates are going. And remember, I mean, the UK does kind of follow the US, which is relevant to the US as well. HSBC recently um, offered a five year fixed term deal for mortgage deal in the UK at below the uh, Bank of England's current policy rate.
0: Really? Okay, so people do believe that rates are coming down.
1: Yes. That That's what what that's the indication is HSBC thinks that rates are coming down, which, you know, for, for the people we're talking about, it's potentially a good thing. And in terms of inflation, that's quite kind of a good thing as well, because it does imply that they think that inflation is going to come down. Interest rates do very much relate to inflation. I mean, policy rates are all about inflation. I remain unconvinced that um, raising policy rates to deal with a, a, a an oil price and gas price shock is. Yeah quite the right thing to do yeah and a war is quite the right approach but it's what central banks are doing and you know inflation will come down because eventually inflation does
0: right and it so doesn't that imply that they've probably overshot already with the tightening cycle
1: I think they have yes I right. do
0: because it's such a lagging I mean you yeah. don't you know you're still waiting for the for the to see what happened from the tightening six months ago now Yep. And you continue to tightening, you know, as yeah. we see sort of this uh, pretty dramatic decrease in inflation. I mean, there's some some in, uh, indications it's been sticky, but I think it's coming down.
1: Yeah, all, all the things I've been looking at um, suggests that inflation is going to come down and yeah. um there is no reason to continue raising rates now. So, and they arguably should have started kind of tapering off the (laughs) the interest rate rises a little while ago. But um, that is actually consistent with what the Fed has done in the past, by the way. It has always overshot. And so, yeah, when you in actually in both
0: directions every time, yeah, I every time. A, the, I think they have a hundred percent hit rate of overreacting in both directions.
1: Totally. And so, you get when you look at kind of historical charts of of inflation versus interest rates and recessions, you kind of see this kind of sawing defect <laughs> where they've overshot and then there's been a recession and then they've overshot in the other direction (laughs) and it caused a boom so yes we 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 could do with maybe something a little more reliable by way of you know sort of trying it's it's very hard for policymakers because you know they're dealing with long and variable lags famously you know it's hard to see what the path of inflation is going to be hard to see what the path of economic growth is going to be um and and therefore quite hard to judge when it's the right time to kind of take your foot off the gas pedal or, you
0: know. It is their one job, though. You think that they could, uh, (laughs) after time, they could listen to what everybody else seems to see as obvious. And I mean, if you look at any, it's interesting because the Fed pivot, right? The much, much, much desired and uh, and hyped Fed pivot. If you look at the pattern of where these recessions and bear markets come, Mm -hmm. it's always the yield curve inversion first. Yes, which we have massively, Every time. then the Fed pivot, then the market bottom, right? And people seem to forget that and think that a Fed pivot means liquidity, means everything goes up, but that's not what's happened really ever in the past. It happens yep. eventually, but that Fed pivot, because they're so poor at timing, usually then causes because they've overshot yep. that recession and bear market. And that's when we see everything bottom. So anyone who's really excited about the Fed pivot hasn't really studied history.
1: Yeah, exactly exactly and the way i see this is that yet again the fed is overshot and um yeah and yeah um i mean i mean all the signs are there and and we have to, as usual the, the um well, not just policymakers, but pundits saying, oh, yield curves, curve's inverted. Oh yes, but that doesn't mean what it has in the past. And I'm going, why doesn't it? This time it always, it's different, right? The most
0: dangerous four words in investing, says Jesse Livermore, right? That, this Absolutely. time it's different. It, it seemingly is never different. and uh, But one of the sort of predictions of I think since really 2020, since the COVID black swan, was that we were going to see this major collapse in the real estate market. Yeah, That hasn't come to fruition. I know that real estate is hyper-local, so it really depends on where you're looking and what metrics. I would argue that it's just frozen. Nothing's happening. right? We thought that there would be a collapse, but it's just there's really no buyers and sellers. If you were selling, you exactly. don't want to give up that 3% rate to go buy a new house at 7%. Exactly that. And if you're buying, you just can't afford it, and you know, and, and you're going to just lock in the same thing. You're going to stay where you are until rates come uh, down. So why do you think we haven't seen this real estate collapse? Or am I just looking at the wrong data and the wrong market? No,
1: I, no, you're you're right. And I, and I keep keep saying this. When we see real estate collapses, it's always, always, always and everywhere associated with a banking collapse. Every time, um, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. There is always if you have a real estate collapse associated with it, it's a banking collapse. Now we haven't had a banking collapse. Um, so, in my book, there was no reason to assume there was going to be a real estate collapse because the two are so intimately interlinked. Um, and then you're right that when people talk about, oh, people are going to stop buying property, um, they was ignore the other side and say, yeah, I know, but people also stop selling and people stop building. Builders, I keep saying this, you know, in the, in the UK where we have, you know, supply problems, and you say, "Well, we could, uh, if we built lots of houses, we could bring the prices down." And I, no, you won't, unless the government builds the houses, because the because private developers won't build into a falling market. If they think house prices are going to come down, they'll stop building. They'll bank their land and sit on it until the market improves. Same with with banks. Banks accept housing as real estate as collateral against loans, right? What bank in the world is going to lend when house prices are falling? Because the the value of its collateral is going to fall. Why would it do that? Again, it makes no sense. And I wish people would think about this, about what are the incentives of the people in the housing market? Because bringing house prices down is not an easy thing to do You can only really do it, I think, with really very large-scale state intervention.
0: Yeah. The developers also overshoot in both directions historically. I I live in Florida, and I remember the financial collapse, obviously, even though I was in New York at the time, in 2008, 9, 10. And Miami was skeleton buildings of 75 to 100% finished condos with nobody living in them. So nobody at that point was going to build more. There was already way too much supply that nobody was willing to buy or live in.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember going to, I think it was Portugal I went to in about 2009 and there were all these cranes everywhere with these unfinished buildings because everything had just stopped um, because there had been a building broom in Europe um, prior to the financial crisis in places you know, like on on around the Mediterranean and so forth and it all stopped. Um, it was, so they, we you just had yeah. these kind of half-finished half building, half finished building products. Uh, they
0: projects. finished them now, though, and people are living in every yeah, single one of them. Yeah, they now finished them, That's...
1: but it took quite a while. And, of course, in Ireland, after the financial crisis, they actually demolished some of the houses they'd built. They had these ghost estates where cheaper they literally had- them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was cheaper to bulldoze them. Amazing.
0: Yeah, it really is amazing. And then we've also seen a lot of people arguing- for a strong economy right now because of what they're seeing in the labor market, which maybe also hasn't collapsed in the way that people thought the real estate market would. Right. United States obviously continuing to have record lows in unemployment, uh, job numbers always seemingly outperforming to the upside. I mean, I think recently the expectation was 180,000 and we got an over 500,000 print Are those the actual numbers that we should be looking at, I guess? So is the labor market actually that strong? Because a lot of people will dig in and say that's it's a lot of temporary workers and it's not yep. full-time jobs, and it's people with three or four jobs. Yep. Uh, or is, once again, is this time different where we've had all of these things, the the tightening, but they've failed to crush the labor market?
1: I'm kind of a bit of both really. I mean, I that think labour markets are tight. But actually, what I think is not being said, you know, we've been talking about wage stagnation. Actually, if you want your wages to grow, you need to have a tight labour market because employers need to be paying more. Um, You know, and so at the same time as we've got people saying, we need Hi, wages to grow they've been stagnant for 20 years or 30 years or whatever it is and we particularly younger people need higher wages at the same time they're complaining about the tight labor market and saying oh we can't have wage rises because there's will fuel inflation and I, I just think can't you is this not a case where actually some inflation is the price we need to pay to get wages to rise possibly
0: as long you know, as the wages are out, wage- outpacing inflation, it's not yeah. the worst thing in the world. The but. other thing
1: we've got, and I mean, I don't know the U.S. U.S. labor market as well as I know the U.K. one, but in the U.K. one, we have the great retirement. I think you have that in the great you in the U.S. Uh, as well, where 100%. you've got a lot, yeah, got a lot of older people, people 55 plus retiring early, and a lot of that is because during COVID and indeed in the ten years before that their um, portfolios, their pension, their pensions, their savings and so forth, they've really done rather well. Um, and so they, they they feel rich, they've got money, they can retire and so they retired. And so we've got this idea here, well, the government seems to have this idea that it gives them tax breaks, they might return to the workforce. And I'm going, if they're feeling rich, why would tax breaks encourage them to return? Um, It doesn't kind of make sense. And I'm not seeing a great deal of sense here in in the thinking around this, about why it is that people are leaving the workforce. So for example, if you've got women leaving the workforce, you need to do something about the cost of childcare. Or you might need to do something about elderly care as well because a lot of women leave the workforce or reduce their hours or drop down into less skilled jobs, less productive jobs. In their 40s and 50s to care for, care for seniors, for you know, for our relatives and so forth. Um, and if you want to want those people to come back into the workforce to take on the kind of jobs that they're actually skilled, sk- skilled and trained to do, then you need to do something about the services that they need, which would be childcare and elderly care and so forth. And 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 if you've got people who've had to drop out of the workforce or reduce their hours because they've got long-term health problems, then you need to do something about your healthcare. Now in the US that might be saying, actually we need to do something about Making it less costly for some people, or something. In the U.S., we have UK, we have capacity issues. You need to do something about that. You know, and it's all these kind of infrastructure kind of issues underneath things that are actually making it difficult for people to stay in the workforce. And if you want to loosen your labour market um, and increase your workforce and so forth, then you need to help those people to get back to work. And giving them tax breaks kind of doesn't cut it, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've seen that sort of the death of the 60 40 portfolio. It's the, you know, been the worst years in history for that sort of conventional wisdom. But if you were even just automatically rebalancing as someone who's retiring, as you said, you benefited from that massive, bo- massive yep, boom exactly. in stocks. And now you've actually probably ended up in bonds with a high yield. Why would you ever <laughs> go Why? back to work? If you can move to, exactly. you know, a 1090 portfolio and you're sitting there getting yeah. four or 5%.
1: I'm really not seeing the incentive for any of these people to go back to work, unless they, you know, can find a job that they really want to do. And the kind right, of that, jobs right. and the kind of jobs we have vacancies for tend to be the kind of delivery driver, um, healthcare assistants. The ones the the seven-year-old
0: uh, retirees don't want or can't exactly. do? Exactly, right.
1: they're the ones that have traditionally been done by young people, young, young and poor people. Not, not. Well-off retirees, you know. So again, I'm not getting it. I'm not seeing the incentives. I'm not seeing. It's it's almost like a lump of labor fallacy that says, "Oh, we can just get the elderly, the older people, back into the workforce." All these this, these kind of jobs are are labor shortages, and those kind of jobs will magically disappear. And I'm thinking how?
0: Yeah, I, I wish that I had it in front of me. There was an article I read either yesterday or or, or two days ago. It actually pointed to the fact that even though we have this stagnation in wages, obviously, we also did see sort of this huge wave of people leaving their jobs and being in high demand and moving to other jobs. And in those cases, which was a huge part of the workforce over the last few years, people did get massively increased salaries because there was so much competition for good employees.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, we we saw a massive increase in the wages paid to to, um, haulage um, drivers, for example, because there was such a shortage of them. But now, um, I mean, here, again, I can't talk about the US so much, but here, one of the problems in the UK is that many of our our shortage shortage occupations are actually in the public sector. And the government is determined not to pay higher wages in the public sector. and has, doesn't seem to have quite. It, it basically doesn't want the labour market to work as a labour market should. I mean, this is just basic supply and demand, basic economics that says you know if you have um, a greater s- supply of jobs than there are people to fill them in this with this particular sector, then wages will rise. That it's just pricing, and so you've got a government that's determined to stop the labour market acting as it should. It's weird
0: yeah, and they, but and they've failed, so the question I, I mean, so the question is, does that mean that we're going to get a bigger recession and eventually see a spike in unemployment, and people are going to lose their jobs, knowing that that's what the Fed effectively has stated as their implicit mandate, right? We need to break something uh yeah. before before we all pivot, or are they just wrong?
1: I, bit, I think they're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought they were just wrong for a while. I mean, the Fed does seem to be determined to continue tightening until unemployment rises. And and I, I found myself thinking that's kind of human misery you're talking about. You literally want to make human, people's lives more difficult and more painful um, because you don't know what to do about an oil price shock under war and supply chain disruption. I'm not getting
0: it. And oil prices are going down anyways.
1: Yeah, and supply chains are healing. I was looking at the, my, my favorite chart is the Baltic Dry Index. It's well worth a look. Just looking at shipping uh, that, costs.
0: That, uh, you you spoke with uh, Mike McGlone, I think, and Dave Weisberger <laughs> on a Monday. And Dave's favorite chart is the Baltic Dry Index. Yeah, so.
1: yeah, yeah. It's the best. It's the best chart. And if you look at that, it, it kind of went up like that. And now it's coming down like that. I am not seeing the inflationary pressure from, you know, shipping. Not getting it.
0: Yeah, we're, even Paola said, we've begun the disinflationary process. Yeah. I think he has an aversion to saying deflationary.
1: Well, I, I think we have to be precise about our terms. I mean, di- disinflationary is where inflation reduces, but it's still positive. It's not deflation until I- inflation actually turns negative.
0: But it is a deflationary pressure that's causing disinflation to some degree.
1: I would call it a disinflation repression myself because I actually—it's I mean, this kind of precision about terms. I mean, I I fight these battles all the time. I write entire posts doing calculus, And, 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 and listen, English. when they when they that use the wrong term,
0: we get uh, we get a collapse in global markets if uh, Jerome Powell says the wrong word. So well, <laughs> exactly.
1: <do>. So <laughs> precision. You know, we are not. I mean, deflation. You no, know, if you look at uh, uh, 1929, for example, this appalling collapse in prices. I mean, that is what deflation is, is a fall in, in the general price level. Now we're nowhere nev- near that. Even if inflation comes down from its current heights, even if it comes down to the Fed's target of 2%, it's still going to be positive. Prices I think, yeah, will still be rising That's not deflation.
0: Right, I think that we have, I, I, Mike McGlone, as I talked about, he, he loves to point out the fact that things like gas, natural gas, are priced the same effectively as they were in the 90s or early 2000s, that we really haven't seen commodity price rises in that degree. So he talks about deflation sort of in that degree. But I agree with you that we're we're not going to see the price of groceries going down anytime soon. Maybe never, right? Maybe it's a slow in the increase, which is disinflationary, but not a decrease. Well, or of course, there is, this, soon.
1: No, there is this sticky price problem, you know, that, that, yeah, I mean, I, the Keynesians talk about, you know, whereby yeah. prices, that prices go up, but they're not so willing to come down. Um,
0: <laughs> so, that works.
1: yeah. So, um, even when inflation has come down, the price level stays what it was before. Even if your inflation comes down to zero, your prices haven't fallen. They're still, so if they went up before, they then stay at that level. Um, The um, sticky price thing is about actually prices aren't. It it takes quite a big shock to make employers, it make companies reduce their prices across the board, and and that's typically a a shock to growth. So it would be a recession, really.
0: Yeah. Do you think that we're going to get this this recession, and if so, how bad?
1: not 100 percent convinced. I know the I know the um yield curve is saying, yeah, big recession on the horizon. And but you know, the, it's always past dependent, isn't it? And so if the Fed actually stopped tightening and if the um the um government kind of did a bit of fiscal stimulus or something, it probably wouldn't happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, they have a they have a good habit of uh doing that when when necessary. I do you think that we get back to a phase of easy money? QE? Or do you think that this Fed pivot looks more like just stop tightening and doing harm?
1: (laughs) Um, I wouldn't want to rule out a return to easy money at some point for the reasons that I gave earlier really, which is the Fed has to control yields really. you know, It's committed itself to doing that, to maintain liquidity in markets because otherwise it can't keep control of interest rates because now it's not just the banks he's trying to control, it's the whole market um so i wouldn't like to rule out a return to some form of easy money and, and i think also there's a paradigm shift here whereby what we used to call easy money in the past which is you know the, the fed pumping out doing qe pumping out money um the the counter to that is qt quantitative tightening the feds doing that and as you recall the fed tried it before and had to stop after a while <laughs> and i think we gonna end up there again. Um, simply because actually what it's it's actually way it we've ended up is it's more like a pump. It's about like saying we've got to maintain liquidity in the markets. We don't want too much or we get these ridiculous booms, which cause Mayhem and silly bubbles and crypto and stuff like that, and we don't want too little, otherwise um, market we get market freezes and and bank failures and things like that. So, you no, know, somehow we're trying to find this Goldilocks level of liquidity, and so the the Feds come up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Responsible money printing, yes. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's absolutely that. And if you you think about it. I mean, even the, the the um tools Fed has created. If you look at the standing repo facility, and the overnight reverse repo facility, you know the the um the standing repo facility dishes out reserves, <laughs> and the overnight <laughs> reverse also, repo yeah. sucks yeah. them all back up again.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's like like I said, it's like a pump. It does work. It does indeed work to, to, to with, with yeah. a little bit of interest rate uh malarkey um to actually make the pump work in the private sector because otherwise nobody would do it would they
0: um always need a little malarkey <laughs> <laughs> it's the government after all i i want to I, I know we're getting up against time but i do want to ask you one more question we talked about bitcoin of course at the beginning sure. yeah. um and i think there's not much debate that uh as an asset there could be a benefit there but what we saw last year in the crypto industry, I'll, I'll say, uh, do you think that there's uh, any redemption or that it's redeemable? Or do you think that uh, maybe it's about Bitcoin and the industry itself uh, needs a further purge?
1: Um, I do think the industry has more to lose yet. I think there are still too many frauds and scams in there. Um, you only have to look at the amount of stuff being punted on on. Twitter to see that yes. there's still lots more frauds and scams in there, actually. So I think a further purge is necessary. I'm not at all happy with some of the stuff that's going on. So yeah, there's more to come out. But I don't think it's going to be reduced to just Bitcoin.
0: I, I okay? agree. I think that it, I mean, even as a, you know, listen, we've learned a lot of hard lessons over the years, even in our most uh, diehard beliefs and, you know, I, I certainly have been a huge proponent for the industry. but. I can't see the contagion being completely over, and I can't see uh nine thousand dog coins surviving. So, oh,
1: you see you've seen the end, end of dog coin? Oh, I,
0: shame. I, I, man, I would, I would love to. I don't think it'll happen, though, unfortunately. I was there, <laughs> I was
1: there at its birth when it, when it was dog Coin. Oh, um, yeah,
0: I was saying dog <laughs> coins in general, the 9,000 <laughs> knockoffs of Dogecoin. I think Doge will survive because it's a powerful meme. it's, the, well, it's, bust, it's but, a meme
1: coin, isn't it? I mean, but it's the, rest the of it, rest original of it's, uh, meme coin. Yeah, that's um, right.
0: That's and utility, got, being first in an original. That's yeah, all absolutely. And, we need it. And
1: that's Bitcoin as well, isn't it? You no, know, that, that Bitcoin <laughs> has this kind of um, meme um it, character as well um
0: and first mover advantage first but, sure. yeah,
1: but but also it's also kind of iconic as well um you know, and it has this hardcore of believers who are max, actual maximalists who still believe it's going to take over the world and I, I know I kind of said, hey, maximalist me, uh, but I don't. <laughs> I do just see that it has some utility.
0: Yeah, I have a pretty strong passion for Bitcoin, but I also don't think it's going to take over the world. And to be quite frank, I don't want to live in the world if it does take over. That's not the yeah. world I want to live in. Because that has to be such a dystopian, horrid future that I don't want to be there and say, ha I told you so, I've got Bitcoin. But,
1: but- yeah, well, actually, in a way, the fact that the crypto industry created stable coins is kind of testament to how extremely illiquid Bitcoin is. You think about it—that it it was just the whole industry was just desperate for liquidity, and Bitcoin couldn't couldn't provide it.
0: I think it's also a testament to the asset that people who are actually in these countries with hyperinflation and massive problems to what asset they actually want.
1: They want to right because we can
0: speak we can speak as much as we want about how they should buy Bitcoin, hedge against inflation, and we could all argue that to death. They want dollars. And they've yeah. always wanted dollars and stablecoin actually gives them dollars when they couldn't have found them even on the black market otherwise. And yeah, I, exactly. I don't see that as a negative. I know Bitcoin maximalists may, but I see that as perhaps the greatest killer app that's come out of the crypto industry in general is access to dollars for people who don't have it.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, Um interestingly, the um growth of stablecoins um, has made US dollar more liquid in places where... It kind of (laughs) enabled the US dollar to reach the parts that it uh, otherwise wouldn't have reached, Um, not least because of the restriction on banking correspondent banking. Since the financial crisis, the banks are much more risk averse than they were. And so we've seen correspondent banking networks shrinking and shortening, which has actually made it really much more difficult to get dollars to quite a lot of developing countries, even ones that are not affected by sanctions. It's just too risky for the banks. So um, stablecoins are in that respect and uh, create a liquidity for those countries that um, Otherwise, would be denied because of the difficulties with the banking system. The problem with that, of course, though, is you know, with the best in the world, USDC and USDT are not dollars. And if you actually want to spend them, you've got to convert them to actual dollars, and then you're back into the US banking system again, and the short correspondent, the restricted correspondent banking, and the short chains, and yeah, banks don't want to deal with you. Um, And I, at the moment, we don't have a solution to that because if anything, the um, US regulators are moving towards even tighter regulation of banks in relation to crypto.
0: Absolutely. And that can be the topic of our next conversation because I've held you long enough. That, thank you so <laughs> much. I, I absolutely love uh, your insights. And I like to think that maybe we won't get this uh, recession of doom or great depression. So it's nice to hear Yeah, I'm possible. hopeful that
1: we won't. I mean, you know, if I just think that cent- central banks really do need to think about stopping the interest rate rises um, and maybe governments need to be thinking about i mean in mine, mind it needs to be thinking about distribution issues I think about and and about the problems that they're storing up for the future if they don't do something about the inability of the young really to build up any significant assets
0: well let's hope let's hope for the best uh where can everybody follow you in your work after this conversation
1: well, you can find me on Twitter at at Francis underscore Coppola. I'm usually fighting with somebody. It's endlessly entertaining. Lots of my followers just follow me <laughs> to see so who I'm fighting fun. with today. <laughs> and it's not necessarily about finance or crypto. It might be about anything. Um yeah. And you can also find me on my own blog, which is coppolacomment.com, um, where I do write about finance and crypto and stuff. Um
0: I, I read it all, so I hope that everybody else does the same. I'm, and, I'm a huge fan, and it's and, really always a pleasure to have you.
1: And I can occasionally be found on Coindesk and on the Financial Times.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure and we will speak very soon, I'm sure.
1: Indeed, I look forward to it. Take care.